0: Well, good evening. Hello to those of you watching us on the live stream for our second lesson in the Job series. Uh, I'm excited to uh, talk about this. This is probably one of my, well, they're all my favorite lessons, but this is one of my favorite pieces of this. So let me say a prayer and we will dive right in. Lord, thank you so much for giving us the freedom in this country to come together and to study your word. Father, we're grateful that you would address and Teach us, over the centuries, from real events, how to understand suffering and hardship, whether justified or unjustified. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and help us reason together to understand what you have to teach us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every week, I mention this, but if you will text your questions to that number, Uh, We try to answer as many questions as we can. I think this series will generate a lot of questions and some of it kind of comes to fruition as we do the whole story, but there are a lot of great questions as we go. So this is a story of a man named Job. And this story is really interesting in the sense that it tackles a number of the deepest questions that people have had. And every civilization throughout all of history, all different kinds of religions or non-religions, I mean, if you think about it, uh, Darwinism, uh, Darwinian evolution, which you don't think of as a religion, probably should, but it's an ideology, if you will, all of those ideologies that propose to explain the meaning of life have to address this issue of Why do bad things happen to good people? Or what do you do when you suffer? Is there a purpose to this? How do you deal with it? Everybody wants to understand how to make sense of what's happening in their life. And the Bible uses the story of this man, Job, and what happened to him to really dive into some of these deeper questions. So let me remind you with just a little bit of a review. This is the world in, oh, about 2000, B.C. So we're about 2,000 years before the time of Jesus, so 4,000 years ago. This is what the Middle East looked like. If you think about it, uh, Abraham, I'm going to use traditional dates, so there's. I just don't want to argue about the dates, but Abraham lived in about 2,000 B.C. and about 1,400 B.C. you have Moses. You remember Moses takes the Israelites out of Egypt to the Promised Land. Well, our story happens about 1800 BC, and it's the story of a man named Job. He lives somewhere here in the Arabian Peninsula. In other words, somewhere in northern Saudi Arabia, seems likely. The Bible doesn't answer all those questions because from a biblical point of view, it doesn't really matter where he lived but you can tell from clues in the Bible that he's probably in northern Saudi Arabia, probably about 1800 BC. He is not a Jew. He worships God, but Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. And Job is not a Jewish person, but he worships God. So this story is pretty universally applicable. Well, we learn about Job in chapter 1 of the story, and chapter 1 and 2 are prose. They're kind of a narrative prologue, and then if you go to the very end in chapter 42, there's prose, kind of an epilogue, and everything in between is poetry. Now, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme, but your Bible sets it out so that you can realize it's verse. And you'll see the beauty of Hebrew poetry as we go through this. I mean, there are just some profoundly beautiful things in this poetry. But it's conveying the story and the dialogues that happen. So Job is a righteous man. Now, remember, we get a bird's eye view. We get to see God's point of view. Job doesn't know everything that we know as we read this story. Job only knows what we typically know when we go through suffering, and that is, all I know is what's happening to me. I don't really see the end of the story or all of the other things that are happening. But God gives us a glimpse of that so that we can transfer that to our story. In other words, if there's a purpose here, then we can presume there's a purpose in our suffering. Job is a righteous man he is an affluent man, he's also influential, he's wise, he's generous. I told you last time, if you translated Job to modern times and he were a Christian, which there were no Christians in 2000 years before Jesus Christ, but if you translated him to today, he would be like the model Christian. So what we learn about Job is you have Satan, who is an angel, and he comes before God and his name, the Satan, means the accuser. And God said, have you seen Job? Look how righteous this human being is. He is God-focused, and he's dedicated, and he honors God, and Satan makes an accusation. And here is Satan's first accusation. We covered this last time. But Satan, the accuser, says this, people serve God in return for the physical blessings that he gives. People serve God. He's he's accusing Job, but he's also accusing you and me. And in fact, Satan today would accuse you and me of the same thing. That's why this story is so timely. People serve God in return for the physical blessings that God gives to us. So think about what Job has. He's rich. He's got seven sons and three daughters and He's uh, an upstanding citizen, and you know he's just been elected to a municipal judgeship, and you know he's he's influential. And so Satan says, "Hey, if you took that stuff away, if you quit blessing him with prosperity, he'll curse you. He only serves you as long as you will bless him." And he says that about you and me. He said, "If you take away our blessings, our physical prosperity." If you did something bad, like one of our children, God forbid, should get sick or die or something that seems unjust, then we too, Satan says, would turn away from God and say, you're not a good God because you haven't protected my stuff or the things that matter to me. So that's Satan's accusation. God says, you know what? I don't think that's true. I really don't think Job, and he says, I really don't think you follow me, love me, trust me, just because of what I give you. He said, I'll tell you what, you take away everything he has if you want to, and I don't think that he'll stop following me. Satan says, oh yeah, he will. And so, if you remember in chapter one, Satan, in the course of a day, devastates Job's life. He goes bankrupt. He loses every possession that he has. His children are all killed in a freak accident, like a tornado hits their house and They're all in the house and they're all killed. And so Job is left with nothing. I mean, he can see his career. I mean, the front page of the newspaper the next morning is prominent citizen Job is now bankrupt and all of his family are dead. Hmm, wonder what he did wrong to make God mad at him. I mean, that's what the paper said the next day. So Job has all this taken away. But if you remember, I'm gonna read to you from the end of chapter one. Job rose up, tore his robe, shaved his head, signs of grief and mourning in that culture, and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. In other words, I'm gonna die just like I came into this world, owning nothing. He said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away "'Blessed be the name of the Lord.'" And he said, in all of this, Job did not sin. And what it meant was, he didn't reject God. Is Job happy? Of course not. Job is crushed. Job is grieving, and yet he doesn't turn his back to God. And so Satan, it appears, is wrong. A couple of things that are worth talking about here, by the way, in this response. What Satan is basically saying is, we think of God like Santa Claus. He's got a list of who's naughty and nice. And if you will be nice all year, he will bless you. I mean, it's kind of a Santa Claus vision, like Santa, you bring me presents, I'll try to be good. You quit bringing me presents, no motivation for me to be good. I'll get on the naughty list, who cares? So it's kind of this Santa Claus version. He said, that's what we think about God, but that's not what Job did. Let me pause for a second in our review to see if we have any questions before we move on.
1: I have several questions about the book of Job. Who wrote it and when?
0: Who wrote the book of Job and when did they write it? It is not known who wrote the book of Job, nor is it known when it was written. There've been a lot of scholars do a lot of study, textual study, redaction criticism, all kinds of analysis of the text to figure it out, but at the end of the day, no one knows. The Jews have a tradition that Moses wrote this book. I do not know that that is correct. There's no particular evidence that that is the case. I'll just tell you that from ancient times was the Jewish tradition. But basically, we do not know who wrote this down. It's kind of an anonymous author.
1: So has it always been considered to be part of the Hebrew Bible?
0: Good question, has Job always been considered part of the Hebrew Bible? Has it always been considered canonical? Has it always been considered inspired of God? Because there are many good stories that the Jews have. I mean, they have awesome stories, but they're not all considered inspired and given to us specifically by God. Basically, yes, there's not a lot of argument, has not traditionally been a lot of argument about Job being a God-given book. I'm shortening the whole argument there, but basically, no. So, no it is argument. accepted
1: by the Jews in the same way that it's accepted by the Christians as part of the canon?
0: Yes, it is. Good question. Is it accepted by the Jews like it is by Christians? Yes, it is. In other words, everything that's in your Old Testament, and I'm going to talk to Protestant Bibles, not Catholic Bibles, but everything that's in your Protestant Bible, like if you have an NIV translation or an ESV or one of the translations, all the books you have in the Old Testament are the same books that are in the Jewish Bible. They don't have the New Testament, of course, they don't believe that, but the same books. They're in a different order in the Jewish Bible, but the same books are there. Good question.
1: Do we know how the author knew about the conversation between God and Satan?
0: Do we know how the author knew about the conversation between God and Satan? It's a great question. That's why it's considered to be an inspired book. If it were a once upon a time story, like an Aesop's fable, if you read one of Aesop's fables, you know that it didn't happen. You got talking frogs, you've got talking dogs. They're clearly stories that are made up to make a point. This is not considered by the Jews to be one of the stories that got made up. It's considered to be a revelation from God of what happened. So that it's considered to be revealed by God as opposed to, because there's no other way a human could know this, right? And it has not been considered, well, some human made this up and it's a really clever story. So they considered it to be revealed by God and so do Christians by and large.
1: How many years did Job's suffering last?
0: Good question. How many years did Job suffer? I, I may be mistaken in this. I do not believe, and I'll look and I'll correct myself if I'm wrong, I do not believe the text is specific on this. In other words, you're about to see about 30-some chapters of dialogue between Job and his friends before his suffering ends but I don't believe there's any specific time frame in there. I'll check and if I'm wrong about that, I'll I'll, uh, correct that. Good question. Well, one of the things I wanna talk about before we move to chapter two, which is scene two. Satan has his first accusation, oh, it didn't work out. Job really did still stick with God. But one of the things that Job's answer is, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return, the Lord gave the Lord took away, blessed be the name of the Lord. It really, Job understands that none of the things he has are actually his. There's a beautiful little uh, poem. Let me share a little line. You may have heard this before. This is a little excerpt, but a guy named, a British missionary named Stud lived 1860, 1931, but anyway, he's composed a long thing, but here's one of the verses, only one life, Twill soon be past. Only what is done for Christ will last. Now I'm not telling you that was Job's attitude because obviously Jesus Christ is 2,000 years in his future, but he gets that same idea, and that is why is Job a righteous man. He understands there's more than just this life. When Job loses everything and he grieves, he's not a a miraculous person is like, oh, it doesn't bother me. No, he's grieving. You're going to hear the depths of his grief in our next lesson next week. But he seems to understand that there's more going on than just physical possessions. I would say that Job understands that possessions do not survive this world. Possessions do not survive this world. Now, you probably go, duh, That's we believe that too. Not everybody does. I mean, in the sense that they don't believe that we survive this world, and so possessions, as long as you have them, become the point of existence. It's sort of like the he who dies with the most toys wins. That's not what we think. He who dies with the most toys has the biggest garage sale. I mean, that's what we think. In other words, there's more to this life. So even though there's not a well-articulated, although later you're gonna see Job And you're gonna understand, he believes that there's an afterlife. He doesn't think when he dies, it's over. And in the Old Testament, you don't have a really well-developed idea, but you're gonna see that he actually acts like he believes there's more than just this life. In fact, this is off the subject, but I wanna plant this seed. In my opinion, if you think this life is all you have, Suppose I have a secular worldview of one kind or another, maybe I'm a Darwinian evolutionist, maybe I'm a scientist, what, you know, whatever, scientism, whatever my view is, if I think, well, I'm gonna live my life and when I die, I'm gone, that's it, there's no more. You are going to have an insurmountable problem answering the question of why good people have bad things happen to them. You are going to struggle all your life with the idea of injustice. There is no answer in a temporal frame for that question. Job is gonna discover the answer to that. And part of the reason is Job understands possessions do not outlive this life. There is something more. Okay, enough preaching on that. Let's move on. Job understands his possessions in this way. I'm not saying Job isn't grieving. Don't misunderstand me. It's not like a no big deal. But Job is kind of like... For example, one time I borrowed some uh, lawn tools from my neighbor, uh, blower, uh, edger, because I didn't have them, I borrowed them from my neighbor. Well, my neighbor didn't ask for them back, so I just kind of kept using them, right? So every week I kept using them, and I thought, this is awesome, I don't have to buy these things now. In fact, I kept them so long, I kind of thought of them as they were mine. And so when my neighbor came back and sheepishly asked for his stuff back, I thought, what, you want to borrow my edger? And he's like, no, I want my edger back. And you know, Job understands that I borrowed all of this. I'm just using a metaphor for you. He understands that, you know what? Those children, all those possessions, they were never really mine. They were always God's and they're going to have to be in God's hands at some point in time. Question?
1: Well, How did Job know God if he wasn't Jewish? And how did he know these other things? Like that there's an afterlife and that his possessions wouldn't be going with him. Because the Egyptians believed possessions would be going with them. Or at least be buried with them.
0: Yeah, good question. Uh, How did Job, since he's not Jewish... How did he know about God, and how did he have any idea of an afterlife? Uh, The Egyptians, who were very prominent in that time, I mean, there are a lot of people, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, all kinds of people had all kinds of beliefs. Uh, The Egyptians thought that your soul did go into the next life, and you really could use your stuff. This, by the way, turns out to be a very bad belief, because not only did the Egyptian pharaohs think that you should bury me with all my stuff, you should bury me with my servants as well. This is bad news if you're one of the servants and you're in good health. It's like your boss comes to you and said, hey, the CEO died and uh, you're gonna work for him in the future, um, we're gonna kill you. you. know, It's one of those kinds. of things. They really had all kinds of superstitious ideas. Well, how does Job know about this? Interesting thing, if you think about this time period, what has happened? So God has been active in history. God has spoken to Noah. Let's think back even before Abraham's time. Noah comes through the flood, God speaks to Noah. Noah believes in God, he's not Jewish. I mean, Abraham hasn't been born yet, so you don't have like the chosen people, the children of Abraham. So there are people in the world that know about God. How much do they know? Well, they don't have the law of Moses, so they don't do sacrifices the way the law of Moses said, but they understand that there's a God, and they understand some things about him. The fact that the Bible doesn't tell you this doesn't mean it's not the case, it just means the Bible isn't gonna tell you everything about everybody and what was happening. But there were clearly people in the world who knew God, like Job, apart from the Jews. The story in the book of Genesis, starting about chapter 12, focuses on Abraham and his descendants and the Jewish people. But you're going to see all through Genesis and even later that there are people who believe in God and they're not Jews. You'll see in the New Testament, there are Gentiles who believe in God and go to the synagogue. They're called God-fearing Greeks, meaning that's shorthand to say they believe in the one true God, they just don't happen to be Jewish by birth, but they come and worship with us. So that's a great question, but there are clearly more going on in this time than the Bible tells us. Why doesn't it tell us? Well, my Bible's already about three inches thick. I think it'd be really thick if God told us everything. So clearly Job knows about God and he's worshiping him. So Satan makes his first accusation and now, he comes and makes his second. Chapter two, very, by the way, the book of Job is a literary masterpiece. It's not just the inspired story of Job. It is written brilliantly. And so here's the second scene, and most of these phrases mirror exactly chapter one. So let's read uh, the first six verses. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan, the Satan, the accuser, an angel, also came with them to present himself before God. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? These words are identical to chapter one. There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright a man who fears God and shuns evil. This is new. He still maintains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all that he has for his own life. I know I took his stuff and he still serves you, but you stretch out your hand and you strike his flesh and bones, he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well, he is in your hands, but spare his life. So let's pause there, because I wanna make a couple of interesting observations about this. The first is, you and Job doesn't know this, but you and I know that God says he's an upright, blameless man. What he means by that is he serves God, he pursues God. Doesn't mean he's never done anything wrong. That's a very Western way of thinking about the idea of perfect or blameless. What it means is he is serving God, he is committed to God. So he says that is true. So it's not like Job has some secret problem like, oh yeah, he looked like a good guy, but actually he was dealing drugs in the back room. That's not the case. God says, yeah, he's a blameless guy. And God says what you did to him is without reason. He does not deserve to lose his stuff. So what the Bible is doing is you and I sometimes ask, why do bad things happen to good people? To be honest with you, it's not a trivial assertion that there are good people. In fact, I would argue that point. I'm not in this series, but everybody that you think is a good person has sin in their life, has problems in their life. But the Bible says, hey, I'm not going to quibble with you. I'm going to show you a guy who God says this guy's upright. God says he didn't deserve this. So the Bible is not trying to mince words. It's going to hit this issue head on. It's going to say, we did about the worst thing that could happen to one of the quote, best guys. Meaning if he were alive today, he'd be a model Christian. So the Bible's not shirking this question. It says, I'll tell you what, let's just go to the extreme. I'm going to give you the best guy in the world and I'm going to let the worst things happen to him. And now we're going to talk about this subject. I love it that the Bible is just head-on. It's not like a political answer like, well, you know, Job wasn't really that good. Or you know what, those things really weren't that bad. God says, no, they were bad. And you know what? He's a good guy. So first of all, the Bible's upfront about that. Suffering, and the, the lesson for you and me is this. It's really easy to believe when bad things happen to us, our first thought, or at least I think most of the time our first thought is, what did I do wrong? Now, sometimes it's obvious. You go, oh no, I'm bankrupt. I made some bad decisions. But honestly, in the, and God, by the way, God doesn't make any distinction. He's not like, oh, well, I can't help you if you did it to yourself. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible's gonna answer this question whether I did it or somebody else did it. But our bigger questions are, I don't understand why this is happening. It doesn't seem to have a purpose. There doesn't seem to be a reason for this to happen and the Bible's going to address that issue. Suffering, and this is what the Bible says, New Testament, Old Testament, God said, your suffering is not always deserved. It doesn't work, like, you be a good person, you don't suffer, bad person, you do suffer. That's what Satan thought, isn't it? He said, oh, you know what, they only serve you so that you won't let anything bad happen to them. God says, I don't think that's the case. He said, and as a matter of fact, he said, that's not the way my universe works. And so suffering is not necessarily deserved. But here's an interesting question. This is something, if you wanna think about this week and talk about it, I want you to envision a world because some of you are thinking, I hope you're thinking, well, when I, whoa, whoa, whoa. The fact that suffering is not necessarily deserved, you've got a God here and I would like for God to give everybody what they deserved. In other words, I don't want you to let bad things happen to Job. He's a good guy, right? I want you to let bad things happen to, well, let's just pick everybody's worst guy, Adolf Hitler. I want you to let things happen to Adolf Hitler. So in other words, we have this built-in sense of justice or fairness, and sometimes we say to God, whoa, I don't like that. You're telling me that suffering isn't always deserved. Well, I actually know that to be true, but I don't like it. I don't like that universe. I want you to have another universe. In fact, I have an issue with you that you didn't make a universe where everybody gets what they deserved. And here's my challenge to you. I want you to do this mental exercise. Seriously, think about it, talk about it. You need to walk this out a few steps. What would the world look like if everybody got what they deserved? Think about that. What would the world look like if everybody got what they deserved? Here's my first reaction there will be very little traffic on the Hefner Parkway. (laughs) Because at one time or another, you guys have cut me off and you should be in purgatory or something for that, okay? But seriously, all joking aside, I want you to think about what would a world look like? If, If we think, God, I don't like your world, you said that suffering isn't always deserved. I don't think that's fair. I think you should only suffer if you deserve it. Think about it. What would the world look like if everybody got what they deserved? My contention is, if you think that through, you don't want to live in that universe. But think it through this week a little bit. I really want you to challenge you about that. The New Testament talks a lot about mercy and grace. And I thought this is just a good time to talk about mercy and grace because this is a great time to explain what they are. So mercy is not getting what you deserve. Remember I said, what would you think about a world where everybody got what they deserved? My father-in-law, criminal defense lawyer, he said this to me one time, I thought this was really wise. He said, you know, everybody wants justice until they're standing before the judge and then all my clients want mercy. You know, that's human, isn't it? So try to imagine a world where you get what you deserve. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve, meaning you deserve to go to jail, but you don't. That's mercy. Mercy is, I deserve to hold a grudge against you because of what you've done, but I choose not to. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting something, uh, is when you do get something that you don't deserve. In other words, it's just the opposite. Grace is when somebody walks up to you and says, oh, by the way, here's a million dollars. Or God walks up to you and said, there's no way you can ever measure up, but here you go. I've made a way for it to happen. Grace is when you do get something that you don't deserve. And so the idea of mercy and grace are very much tied into this idea of bad things happening to good people and suffering isn't always deserved mercy is never deserved. I mean, by its definition, it's when you get something you don't deserve. And so the idea, if you, get a, if you do away with the idea of a universe where not everybody gets exactly what they deserve, you do away with grace and you do away with mercy. And not many of us wanna do away with it, but I want you to think about how tightly connected those ideas are. So Satan says, Job, will completely deny you if you let me do that." And so God says, very well. So Job goes out, or excuse me, Satan goes out, and here's what he's basically saying. He said, okay, I told you that people only serve you because of the stuff you give them. Well, apparently Job is an exception. He said, but all of you guys do that. He said, but I'll tell you what, my second accusation is this people serve God in return for immunity from suffering. What he's saying is skin for skin. What he meant by that was even if Job's children died, that's bad, but it's not as bad as if Job gets sick. He said, so Job might be a righteous guy and say, those children were really yours, but you strike him and he will deny you to your face. What he's saying is people serve God in return for immunity from suffering. What he's really saying about all of you, and this is his accusation, is you are a bunch of people who know that you can't control what happens in life. Cancer, you don't know, you can't control it. Will I get it, will I not get it? And once we cure cancer, you know what? It will be something else. Bad news, spoiler alert, nobody gets out of this thing alive right? So we will all die. And so bad things, some bad things will certainly happen to us. So what Satan is saying is you're afraid of that. You're afraid of dying. You're afraid of getting sick. You're afraid of suffering. You're afraid of loss. And so you believe in God if he will be your cosmic fairy godmother and he will protect you from suffering. So he's not just Santa Claus, he's a superhero. It's like, God, I will serve you, I'll worship you, I'll do whatever you want, but I need you to protect me from this big old mean world out here. That's Satan's accusation. He said, that's why you serve God. God said, I don't think so. I don't think that's the case. I don't think everybody's selfish. By the way, when you talk about this self-centered kind of an idea that religion is basically self-centered, that's what Freud thought. He thought, religion is for weak people who are just afraid that bad things are gonna happen to them. They just can't face it head on, and so they need some fairy godmother who they hope, they'll pray, they'll do whatever, and they just hope that God will take care of them. That's what Freud thought. Nietzsche, uh, who's the father of postmodern thought, he is the father of secular society, he said, that's all a myth. It's a hard world, get over it. Do unto others before they can do unto you. Not a nice guy, but at least he was consistent. If you think about the idea, because a Darwinian understanding of life that you got here through evolution, and not just that, the Darwinian idea is this. You didn't just get here through evolution. You got through here by random chance, random mutations, and survival of the fittest, natural selection. So bad things happening, that's good if you're on top. It's good to be king. It's good to be the lion. It's bad to be the antelope, right? In other words, that idea doesn't have a lot of room for selflessness. Everything is selfish. Richard Dawkins, the noted atheist, kind of one of the spokespeople, he kind of came to fame when he wrote a book called The Selfish Gene, and what is it saying? And this is secular thinking in our world. This is not a Christian idea, but a lot of people that you know effectively think this way. The idea is that your genes are selfish in the sense that they wanna perpetuate themselves. So morality really has no place in that. That's why the lion kills the antelope. That's why they fight with each other to see who will mate. In other words, it's a fundamentally selfish world. That's why evolutionists have such a hard time explaining altruism. In other words, when you see people doing altruistic things, For example, and I'll give you an example, I'm not even just talking about people diving in to save somebody and then they themselves get drowned, risking their own life to save somebody. You don't even need to get that uh, sophisticated. You as Christians, you give money to help people you don't know for no reason that benefits you at all. Stop and think about that. What benefit do you give from your tithe, from the giving that you give to other people? Nothing. You think about that from a selfish point of view and you go, what could you do with that money? You could get more toys and yet you do it. And the point that I'm trying to make there is, God says you are not inherently made to be selfish and I don't believe the people that serve me are selfish. That's why in the New Testament it talks about, you need to put your old self to death. That's in the book of Romans. In the book of Luke, Jesus says, if anybody wants to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, meaning crucify your self-centered nature and now come follow me and be about what I'm about in the world. That is radical, that's a radical thing to say because it's basically going against what Satan says. Satan says you're self-centered and you will only serve God as long as it serves your purpose and God says no, I don't think so. And Jesus says, no, I don't think so. I think people that surrender themselves to me and die to their old self can rise, Roman says, to walk in newness of life. You become a new creation. That is the essence of the gospel. Satan says, nah, that's not true. You're a bunch of selfish people. You will ditch God in a heartbeat if you can. So you see that you've got two different worldviews about who you really are. Now, this is kind of a side note, but if you think about it, and you think about the spiritual battle that we have in this world, Ephesians says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. In other words, Satan wants to destroy you. You think the IRS wants to destroy you, and yeah, maybe they do. But really, Satan, just kidding, those of you that work for the IRS. But my point is, Satan does want to destroy you. And Satan is gonna tell you a lot of lies because Satan wants you to be selfish. Selfish people are basically serving Satan. Christ says, I want you to be selfless. I want your old self to die. I want you to let me and the Holy Spirit to live in you and go do things that are just crazy to this world. It's just unbelievable compassion and love and mercy and showing grace to people who don't deserve it. He says, I want you to be like me. Those are two radically different worldviews. So what's happening in the book of Job is so relevant to today because Satan is still saying that. Put your name in this blank, saying, God, that person only serves you because they think they're getting something out of it. And God says, I don't think so. I think they have died to their self-centered person and they live for me. Remember what Paul said? To die is gain, to live is Christ. He said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You become a new creature. Okay, that's getting preachy too. But I want you to understand that this old story, this 3,800-year-old story is absolutely modern in its sense. Okay, so what happens? So Satan goes out from uh, God and here's what he does. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, pardon me, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Job replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, God did not sin, in what he said, or Job did not sin, excuse me, in what he said. So a couple of things I wanna point out here. We'll get to Job's wife in a minute. But first, Job's wife gets a, gets a bad rap. I, I'm gonna stand up for Job's wife here. But first, there's irony in this. I want you to think about, it. Job's lost everything, he's bankrupt, he has no reputation, he can't pay his country club dues anymore. He's used to sit in the city gate as one of the wise elders who would judge cases. And if you've ever seen gates, ancient gates, they had, as you go through the gate, there's a big area and people would, that's kind of where their uh, judicial system was done. You'd get the village elders, the wise people, and people would bring disputes and they would adjudicate the answer for them. Job used to sit in the city, when you say sitting in the city gates, was shorthand in the Old Testament for, you are considered a wise, godly, influential person. He used to sit in the city gates. Now he is sitting in the dump. The place where the ashes are is he's sitting out of town because let's face it, everybody looks at him and goes, hey, that could be communicable. You need to get out of town, right? He's sitting out of town in the city dump among the ashes and it's so bad he just takes a broken piece of pottery to scrape his skin to try to get some relief. I mean, Job is miserable. He's suffering. He not only has the grief and the sense of loss, he's also physically suffering. And I want you to remember this. For the next 40 chapters, this is how Job is going to be. It's not like when we get into the dialogue with Job's friends, I don't want you to think about Job, you know, coming in from his morning jog and, you know, drinking his uh, shake and his protein shake and chatting with his friends. I want you to think about Job. He's suffering like this for the entire rest of this story. So even though he doesn't, Satan, he proves Satan wrong, at least in the short term, because he doesn't turn to God and say, well, you just afflicted me so you're not my God anymore, but he stays in that situation and Satan's over here hoping like, you just give him long enough, he'll turn against God. And so that's going to be the set the stage for the rest of our story. So before we get to Job's wife, what questions do we have?
1: Is Job's suffering foreshadowing the suffering of Christ in that Christ was blameless and yet still suffered?
0: Good question. Is Job's suffering a foreshadowing of the suffering of Christ? Well, in this sense, it is that Job's suffering is undeserved and Christ's suffering is undeserved. He did nothing. I mean, as unjust as Job's suffering is, that's like this big and it's big. Christ's suffering is cosmic in comparison to that. And you'll see the Bible do that a lot. And we've talked about that in our lessons is, God does a lot of things in real life history to foreshadow spiritual cosmic things. So it is in that sense, it is not in the sense that Job is not suffering on behalf of someone else. In other words, this story is a little different. So yes, in some senses, I think it is. I may be mistaken about this, I don't see Job as much as a Christ figure as I see the Bible trying to answer a question that every human being in all time has struggled with. So, good question. So, Job's wife. So Job's wife says, one of two things. We're gonna find out how kind you really are. You have two possible motives for Job's wife. One of them is compassion. Job, honey, this is beyond bearing. Just go ahead and die and put yourself out of suffering. Compassion or bitterness. Job, I don't know what you did, but I can't pay the bills. You are a burden. I cannot come visit you anymore. You just need to croak and move on. That's kind of a loose translation of the Hebrew. So either she is bitter at him, and it's like, oh my goodness or she's compassionate. But I want you to keep this in mind. As much as Job has lost, she has too. Job's children are dead, her children are dead. Job lost everything, she lost everything. So I don't want you to be too hard on Job's wife. Job's wife comes in, and I tend to think of it as more compassionate. Like Job, I don't know why this happened, But this suffering is hard to watch. You're going to see that in a minute. His friends, they can't believe this. This is hard to watch. Curse God and you'll die. I don't know what the thing is behind this, but I don't want you to suffer. So I always give her the benefit of the doubt because she's grieving too. And she doesn't understand any better than Job. Why is this happening to us? But she does, and so Job answers, and he doesn't say, you're a foolish woman. He just says, that's talk like a foolish woman, and you're not a foolish woman. Should we accept good from God and not accept bad? That's a really profound question if you think about it. I mean, if you stop and think about it, it's like, God, you can be my God as long as you give me good stuff, but if you ever give me something challenging or bad, I'm sorry, our contract's broken. You can't be my God anymore. Job goes, what kind of servant is that? I mean, if you're God, is that the kind of person you want? If you're a parent, is that the kind of kids you want? Hey, I love you, and you can be my parents as long as you do good stuff for me. But as soon as you quit, I don't like you anymore. Oh wait, our kids did say that to us. Never mind. Yeah, when they were little, it's like I hate you guys. You're terrible parents. Like, yeah, I know, but you got no other choice. So just shut up, go to your room. But bottom line is, he's. If you think about it, that's pretty profound. I mean, honestly. Is it really loving God and serving God if you only do it when he gives you good stuff? And that's what Job is saying. He said, should we take good from God and not trouble? I mean, that makes no sense. That's a foolish way to think about the universe. I don't like this, he says, but it's pretty foolish to think that I only serve God when things go well. That's that's not a very good universe. By the way, I thought we might as well dip our toe into a controversial subject here, euthanasia. The book of Job is not about euthanasia, but where we are right now is basically this. In our world today, there is a movement, well advanced in Europe, just getting started in the United States, that says life is not worth living if you are suffering too much. And frankly, most of the people in Europe, a lot of people in Europe at least, who are experiencing euthanasia, it isn't always because they're suffering. It's just because they don't see any hope. In other words, I'm not suffering from this disease, but it's not curable, so I decided I'm going to die when I want to die. A matter of fact, that was the subject of a very big news piece in the United States not very long ago. This idea of euthanasia, one of the reasons Christians have such a hard time with this idea, and this is just one of the reasons, is as we go through the story of Job, the point that God's going to make is you don't know the end of this story. You don't know how this will turn out. You don't know if there is indeed a purpose in this. Now, we're going to get to see that as we play this out. But one of the reasons, and this is just one of them, the other is respect for life. I mean, a lot of other reasons. But one of the reasons is to say that I decide I'm going to die or I decide you're going to die because you're suffering is to say, I know the end of the story. And God says, you don't know the end of the story. So that is one of the reasons. It's also one of the reasons why, traditionally, the Christian idea and the Jewish idea, by the way, has been against suicide. In other words, that that's not right. It's not a good thing to do. It's not the unforgivable sin. I mean, I'm not trying to get treat that in a trivial way because it's a powerful, painful, tragic kind of thing that happens, but the reason that Christians think that is Even when it seems dark to us, God sees more than we see. So that's one of the reasons in this world that Christians are really resisting the idea of euthanasia. Let me move on to another more immediate point. Here's an interesting question. Does our faithfulness to God depend on our circumstances? Now, Satan is accusing and saying, oh, absolutely, put you in unfavorable circumstances, especially personally painful, like Job, unfavorable circumstances, and you will stop serving God. The, the question for the Christians are, and by the way, this is why I think that all the apostles, you know, 11 of the 12, died very painful deaths and had very difficult lives. They weren't flitting around on jets going from one conference to another, died at a nice old age you know, in their mansions. Didn't happen. They lived hard lives. In fact, Paul was told, you need to understand how much you're gonna have to suffer for my name. Is that because God's mad at them? No, it's because they needed to live that kind of life so that you and I can understand that faith is not dependent on circumstances. If the apostles were willing to preach the truth, be faithful to God, even though they lost everything they had and they died, then that's an example to us that our faith cannot be dependent on our circumstances. Unfortunately, that's too often true in our culture. Our divorce rate, and again, I understand that things happen, that sin happens in our lives, but my point is, if you listen to the world's message, this is just one example. As soon as your spouse is not making you happy, you need to ditch them because if they are not helping your circumstances be better, if they're not meeting your needs, if they're not moving you forward, if they're not giving you positive energy, whatever it is you think they're supposed to be doing, then you should ditch them because you're only in it as long as things are going good. And I think the Christian, that's why part of the Christian message is, is our faith is not dependent on our circumstances. We want to be faithful even in difficult times. That's part of what Job is gonna talk about. I love this passage, by the way, from Isaiah. When When Job says, shall we accept good from God and not bad, he's also acknowledging the sovereignty of God. In other words, the idea that God is in charge. God sees the whole picture. God made everything. Everything belongs to him. I am not God. Isaiah says the same thing. This is really graphic. One who argues with his creator is in grave danger. We will find that out in chapter 38. One who is like a mere shard among the other shards on the ground. The clay should not say to the potter, what in the world are you doing? Your work lacks skill. Think about that. Think about us saying to God, I don't know what you think you're doing, but you are not running my life nearly as well as you should be running my life. I don't know if you've ever had those conversations with God, but I have. And I think it's a tribute to God's mercy and grace that I'm still here to tell you that, you know? Because think about it, you know? And who hasn't, if if you have children, you've experienced this on a small scale, imagine what it's like to God. Your children come in, I've experienced this about the time they turn 13. And they decide, oh, I've got life figured out. And so they wanna come tell you how poorly you are handling everything and how much they know better than you do. And it's sort of like this, it's like the pot is telling the potter, you're not very skillful, I don't like how you're making me. I mean, the absurdity of that situation is just amazing, isn't it? Well, that's what Job is acknowledging. He says, shall we accept good and not bad? In other words, am I really gonna criticize God that he doesn't seem to know how to run this universe? Job realizes, I can't run this universe. The best we can do is be critics. We definitely can't run it. And so at this point, you see Job being so well-grounded. Now, what is going to make Job? Now, some of you may be saying, well, wow, this is a great story, but I can't relate to Job. I'm not that noble. I'm not there yet. I I don't know that I could handle these things the way Job did. That's okay, because Job is going to wrestle with this. Starting next lesson, Job is going to sit there in ashes, suffering, and he's going to think, this is the way my life is going to end. I'm going to suffer, then I'm going to die. And he's going to start struggling and questioning and doubting. And we're all going to go, okay, that Job I can definitely relate to. So that's what we're going to see next. But this is how God sets this story up for us. Last thing, I'll preview what's gonna happen next. So the big questions that we had is this idea, I want you to think about, envision a world where everybody gets what they deserve. That's not the answer to this question, but as we, over the next few weeks, think this through, why do bad things happen to good people? Is there an answer to that question? Is there an answer that lets God still be good? Is there an answer that lets God still be powerful and sovereign? Think about some of the alternatives. What would happen in a world where everybody got what they deserved? Secondly, think about this. Does my faithfulness to God rely on my circumstances? That's what Satan says. Is he right? Or does my faith transcend my circumstances? Well, Job has three friends that come from a faraway place, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They heard about the troubles that came upon him. I guess his wife put out a Facebook post. So they saw this, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. Now, just like I told you that his wife got a bad rap, these guys get a just rap, but I want you to know they start out by wanting to go take a long journey to comfort their friend. So these guys start out with the best of intentions. When they saw him from a distance, They hardly recognized him and they began to cry. And they tore their robes, sprinkled dust on their heads, sign of grief and mourning. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. I don't know if you have friends like that, but I hope that you do, who would come and just be with you in a moment when your suffering is really great. Because, you know, sometimes there just aren't words to say. So this is the last good thing you're ever gonna hear about these three friends. So I just wanted to pause here to say they started out to be really good guys, but next week turns out not so helpful. So think about this week. Envision a world where everybody gets what they deserved, And secondly, talk to yourself and say, does my faith rely on my circumstances? This is part of God's answer to this question. Next week, we'll hear Job's three friends answer to this question, and it's not quite as good as you would hope for, but I'll see you next week.